This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanStories.com. That's OurAmericanStories.com. And this next story is a story of regret from Liz Faria. We came across this story on Liz's blog, AmothershipDown.com. Here's Liz with her story. It was something about the phrasing that got to me. Something about the cadence of his words, the staccato of his speech. Nobody loves me, not even my mother who gave birth to me. It's an odd turn of phrase, isn't it? Not even my mother who gave birth to me. He was buckled into the back seat of my Toyota, still too little to sit up front. At seven, he had already moved more times than the total number of years he had been on the earth. And this time, like the times before it, he moved with his belongings in a trash bag. A suitcase, at least, would have added a small degree of dignity to the whole affair, to being placed in another and another and yet another foster home before reaching the third grade. Trash bags break, you know. Trash bags can't possibly support the contents of any life, and certainly not a life as fragile as this. They break from the strain, eventually. This move was harder for Stephen than most. It was a home he thought he would stay in, at least for a while. He had felt affection there. When I went to pick him up, after his foster mother gave notice that he could no longer stay, he came easily with me. Head down, no reaction on the surface of it. It was only when he got into my car that he began to sob the kind of aching sound that leaves you limp in its wake. He could barely get out the words. Nobody loves me, not even my mother who gave birth to me. Months later, in a repeat scene, another foster mother, another removal, he would put up a fight. He would run around the living room, ducking behind furniture, refusing to leave. But on this night, he had no fight in him. That was Stephen at seven. Nine-year-old Stephen grips his report card in sweaty hands. We're headed to an adoption event where we'll meet families who want to adopt an older child. Families who do not automatically rule out a boy like Stephen with all of his long history. And he wants to impress them, these strangers. He wants to win them over. And so he brings his good report card along as tangible proof that he's a child worth loving. A child should never have to prove that he's worth loving. Twelve-year-old Stephen tells me that I'm his best friend. I'm his social worker, and he should have a real best friend, but I don't say this to him. We're at a taping for Wednesday's Child, the news spot featuring children who are up for adoption. Stephen's engaging on camera. Maybe someone will pick him this time. Maybe he's offering just enough evidence at 12 that he's a boy worth loving. And he is lovable, truly. But it's not enough. A family never comes. Years later, long after I've left the agency... I get an email from my old boss asking how I'm doing and ending with a short P.S. Stephen's in DYS lockup after running away from his foster home. You need to adopt him. My stomach drops. I've had this thought many times. I should adopt him myself. But I don't. I heard about his murder from a friend who had seen it in the news. Shot outside a party over some foolish dispute. Dead at 18. Dead just as he became a man. Not my Stephen, I prayed. When I realized that it was really him, that it could be no other, I sobbed, gripped by the kind of anguish that leaves you limp in its wake. What have we all done? What haven't we all done? The newspapers ran very little about the murder, as if it were an afterthought. 
barely worth a mention, really. Anonymous strangers posted nasty comments online. Just another gangbanger, they said. You don't even know him. You don't know the first thing about this boy. You don't know that as a child, he would trace letters into my back with his finger to pass time at the doctor's office, asking me to guess what phrase he was spelling out. I, heart, you, he traced between my shoulders the last time we played this game. Stephen had been wrong that night in my Toyota. His mother did love him in her way. She was there at the funeral. She greeted me kindly. I think she knew I loved Stephen as I knew she did. We both failed him in the end, and that joined us, I suppose. Neither of us could give him a family. There were no photos from Stephen's childhood at the funeral home. No images of the green-eyed boy with the sweet smile to remind us of what had been lost. There were no pictures of Stephen with his brothers, and so I printed up snapshots of the four boys together, taken on a supervised visit, and brought them to the funeral home to give to the family. It was something I could do, against the larger backdrop of nothing I could do. There were very few social workers at the funeral, and none of Stephen's many foster mothers. Were they even told he was dead? Stephen spent more of his life being raised in the system than out of it. If you claim legal responsibility for a child, you best show up at his funeral. You should show up when he dies. He was yours in a way, wasn't he? You owe it to him. And if he didn't belong to you, then who did he ever belong to? His mother was there at least. His mother who gave birth to him. I hear the echo of his voice from those many years ago. Somebody does love you, Stephen, I want to tell him. But it's too late. Stephen was the one for me. The one who embodied all the failures of a system so broken that to heal it would take far more than the casts that heal the literal broken bones of the children growing up within it. They break, you know. These kids we leave behind. Eventually they break. They do eventually break. And there are so many sad stories like this around this great country. They shouldn't happen. They do. And what beautiful storytelling by Liz Faria. And by the way, her blog, amothershipdown.com, you can find more writing like it. And it's sad and it's hard, but we don't shy away from any kind of story here on Our American Stories. Nobody loves me, not even my mother who gave birth to me. Just ponder that, folks. A child should never have to prove his worth. He's worth loving. I mean, this kid would go on auditions. Love me. And then he wouldn't get picked. Heck, it broke my heart as a young actor when I went on auditions, and it was just an acting part, and someone didn't pick me. I just can't even imagine what that would be like, that kind of rejection. He was murdered dead at 18, just as he was to become a man. What have we all done? What haven't we all done? Again, that's Liz Faria. An adoption story that didn't happen. A great regret in her life. How many of us could prevent something like this from happening? We'll continue to do stories like this, hoping that some of us will open that door to our homes to a boy like Stephen. This is Our American Stories.
we continue with Our American Stories, and our next story comes from a man whose YouTube videos are followed by hundreds of thousands of viewers of all ages, and he's simply known as the History Guy. In 1966, an SR-71 Blackbird disintegrated at 78,000 feet. The pilot's first thought was, quote, no one could live through what just happened, therefore, I must be dead. Here's the History Guy with the story of the SR-71 Blackbird disintegrating at altitudes unknown to most men. There's an old airplane story that's called the LA Speed Check. It goes something like this. A, a pilot of a single-engine Cessna calls the Los Angeles Air Route Control Center and asks for a speed check. He wants to know how fast he's going, and the center tells him he's going about 90 knots. Immediately thereafter, another pilot, someone in, say, a twin-engine Beechcraft, trying to make fun of how slow the Cessna goes, asks for a speed check, and the center tells him that he's going around 121 knots. But almost immediately thereafter, another voice chimes in, and this is a Navy pilot who flying in an F-18 fighter jet, and he doesn't really need to know how fast he's going. He's got an airspeed indicator inside his cockpit. He's just trying to prove to everybody out there on the frequency that he's flying the biggest, baddest, fastest jet in the world, and show all those Cessna and Beechcraft owners how fast our plane really flies. And the, the LA Center radios back that he's going a, an impressive 620 knots. And you think that would be enough to win this little contest when another voice casually asks, this is Aspen 3-0. Can you give us a speed check? And after a moment, the center responds, Aspen 3-0, we have you going 1,993 knots. That story, which was related in Brian Scholl's book, Sled Driver, Flying the World's Fastest Jet, shows how extreme the world's fastest air-breathing manned jet aircraft in history, the Lockheed SR-71 Blackbird, really was. But, you know, if you fly in an airplane that can go more than three times the speed of sound and almost into outer space, one thing's important. You don't want to fall out. And if you did, it would be history that deserves to be remembered. In late 1957, the CIA approached the defense contractor Lockheed, asking them to secretly design an undetectable spy plane. Lockheed's Advanced Development Project Unit was called the Skunk Works, a, a nickname it had gotten since the original facility had been built near an old plastics manufacturing plant that produced awful smells. In 1955, the Skunk Works had gotten a CIA contract to build an ultra-high-altitude spy plane designed for flying over the Soviet Union and photographing sites of strategic interest. The plane was the Lockheed U-2, a plane able to fly at such a high altitude that it was thought to be outside Soviet radar capacity and invulnerable to Soviet fighter aircraft and ground-to-air missiles. The new request was for a plane that could go even higher and faster than the U-2. The plane ended up with the designation SR for Strategic Reconnaissance 71. Painted a blue so dark that it was almost black to camouflage the plane against the night sky, it earned the nickname Blackbird. The SR-71 was designed for flight at over Mach 3, with a flight crew of two. Traveling at supersonic speeds meant that the outside of the aircraft would get very hot, more than 600 degrees, so Lockheed could not use aluminum. The plane was 92% titanium, inside and out. But most problematic is that the ore needed to make titanium is rare and in short supply in the United States. The major supplier of the ore was the Soviet Union. The U.S. surreptitiously worked through third-world straw buyers to acquire the ore. The plane was designed to reduce its radar cross-section, an early version of stealth. That combined with its speed and altitude made the plane virtually invulnerable to countermeasures. 
There were also challenges given the plane's altitude ceiling, above 80,000 feet. A normal pilot's mask cannot provide enough oxygen for a pilot above about 40,000 feet, and breathing becomes impossible above 49,000 feet, as the pressure at which the lungs excrete carbon dioxide exceeds outside air pressure. At 62,000 feet, some 18 plus kilometers, the pressure reaches something called the Armstrong limit. The Armstrong limit represents the altitude above which atmospheric pressure is sufficiently low that water boils at the normal temperature of the human body. Simply put, a human cannot survive above this limit, as their blood would literally boil. To withstand the conditions, air crews for high altitude craft have to wear pressurized suits. In the terrible scenario where an aircrew had to eject at extreme altitudes, the suit had a built-in oxygen tank designed to keep the suit pressurized. Of just 32 SR-71s built, 12 were lost to accidents, and the first of those accidents occurred during the plane's testing phase on January 25, 1966. The plane, tail number 952, took off from Edwards Air Force Base at 11.20 a.m. The pilot was Bill Weaver, an experienced Lockheed test pilot. Jim Zweyer, a Lockheed Flight Test Reconnaissance and Navigation System Specialist, was in the rear. The two were investigating procedures designed to reduce trim drag and improve high Mach cruise performance. Weaver increased the plane speed to Mach 3.2 and climbed to 78,000 feet. Several minutes later, the right engine automatic inlet control system failed, requiring a switch to manual control. This was common in the early test phase of the aircraft. But as Weaver took the plane into a scheduled 35-degree bank turn to the right, the right engine suffered a dreaded inlet unstart. The resulting asymmetric thrust caused the plane to roll further right, increasing the bank to 60 degrees, and pitch up. Knowing the chances of surviving an ejection at Mach 3.18 and 78,800 feet was not very good, Weaver hoped to be able to get the plane to a lower altitude and speed to allow a safe ejection. He yelled for Zweyer to stay with the plane as they attempted to gain control, but the G-forces were so strong that the words came out garbled and unintelligible. The radical G-forces were beyond human limits, and Weaver and Zweyer lost consciousness, neither able to activate the ejection system. SR-71, tail number 952, disintegrated in midair. Back at Edwards, the plane disappeared from radar, and they lost radio contact. The initial assessment was, was that the flight crew could not have survived such a violent breakup at that speed and altitude. When Bill Weaver woke up, he thought he was having a bad dream. His next thought was, no one could survive what just happened, therefore I must be dead. But as he became more aware, he could hear rushing wind and what sounded like straps flapping. He was alive and had somehow separated from the aircraft, despite not activating the ejection system. In fact, he had been thrown clear in the accident. His ejection seat was still with the wreckage of the plane, falling to earth at that very moment. The flight suit had apparently done its job, with the oxygen tank that was attached to the parachute harness inflating the suit to keep it pressurized. That was itself astounding, given the violence of the plane's breakup, and it was a good thing, otherwise Weaver's blood would be boiling. But the visor on his helmet was iced over. While he could tell that he was falling, he couldn't see. The parachute system was supposed to initially deploy a small chute that should keep him from tumbling, but he couldn't be sure that it had deployed. As he had no idea how long he'd been unconscious, he didn't know how far up he was, or how long before he might experience the rapid deceleration caused by colliding with the earth. But the small chute had deployed, and he was falling vertically. The main chute should open automatically at 15,000 feet, but he could not be sure the automatic systems were functioning. He tried to find the manual activation for the chute, but his hands were numb by cold, and with the suit inflated, he couldn't find it. But just then he felt the reassuring sudden deceleration caused by the opening of the main chute. 
He lifted the faceplate on his visor, only to find that the latch was broken and he had to hold it up. Given the plane's speed, he couldn't even be sure which state he was going to land in, and the ground below looked desolate. He could see the burning wreckage of the airplane on the ground some miles away. And most importantly, he was reassured to see Jim Zwayer's chute open some distance off. Despite being an experienced test pilot, Weaver had never actually jumped out of an airplane before. This was his first parachute landing, and he said it went okay, despite nearly landing on what appeared to be a very surprised antelope. Given the size that the search area must be, he figured he'd have to figure out how to survive the night before he could expect rescue. But on that count, he was wrong. He was busy trying to collapse his parachute while having to hold up his faceplate when he heard someone behind him say, Can I help you with that? It turns out the plane had broken apart over a New Mexico ranch owned by Albert J. Mitchell Jr. Mitchell and several ranch hands were branding colts when they heard a noise and saw parachutes descending from the sky several minutes later. Mitchell was a pilot and owned a small Hughes 300 helicopter and had immediately flown to where Weaver had landed. After helping Weaver collapse the chute, Mitchell flew to where Jim Zwayer's chute had landed, only to find that Zwayer was deceased. His neck had apparently snapped when the airplane broke up. After the accident, Weaver found out that the flapping noise that he'd been hearing as he was falling was because the heavy nylon straps that had strapped him into the aircraft had been shredded by the accident. And that shows how impressive it was that his flight suit held together through all of that. But he also found out that the oxygen tank that connected to his flight suit was connected by two tubes and one had torn loose and the other was barely hanging on. If that second tube had torn loose, then the flight suit would not have inflated and he would have died. Albert Mitchell flew Weaver to the nearest hospital, which was in Tucumcari, New Mexico, and Weaver remembers being terrified because Mitchell kept the little helicopter speed above the red line for the entire trip, and Weaver was thinking how ironic it would be that if he survived falling out of an SR-71 at 78,000 feet, only to die in a little helicopter on the way to the hospital. The Air Force retired the SR-71 in 1998, and NASA retired theirs in 1999, but there are persistent rumors that the Skunk Works is working on a successor to the SR-71 that some people claim will be twice as fast. In its 33 years of service, Jim Zwayer was the only SR-71 crew member to die in a flight accident. Bill Weaver was back flying SR-71s within a week and eventually became Lockheed's chief test pilot. He retired and lives in Carlsbad, California. The man who survived the disintegrating blackbird, his story, Bill Weavers, here on Our American Story. And this is Our American Stories. And as you can imagine, with the extreme nature of the sport, snowboarding, when it started, caught on really fast. Its popularity skyrocketed when a young East Coast college grad made some innovative designs that have lasted to this very day. Here's Greg Hengler to tell us the story of the one, the only, Jake Burton, and the sport that became a worldwide phenomenon. Snowboarding is now a well-established sport and has come in leaps and bounds. White is the new gold. 
With its own culture, superstars and equipment, competitions and events have become international staples. Snowboarding has evolved into different styles, including alpine racing, freestyle, free riding, backcountry, and more. But where did it all begin? Uno, dos, one, two, tres, cuatro. It began in 1965 with the Snurfer. The Snurfer was invented by a Muskegon, Michigan engineer named Sherman Poppin. This contraption was a monoski. Two skis strapped together and ridden with both feet facing forward in the direction in which you are traveling. Like a skateboard or a surfboard, it had no binding. And like a sled, it had a rope attached to the nose to help with the steering. Ironically, skateboarding was birthed in a similar spirit when in the 1950s, kids attached roller skate wheels to small boards that they steered by shifting their weight. Here's Sherman Poppin discussing the birth of his snurfer. I developed the snurfer on Christmas Day uh, 1965 as a toy for my kids. And the motivation was uh, I lived on the shore of Lake Michigan and always uh, wished I could surf, but we never really had good waves. Anyway, I had these old Kresge skis and I put them together and we started riding perpendicular to the direction of travel, which is part of the patent. It turned out that it was an absolute blast. And my wife watched us through the window and she said, you know, that is really a fun thing. And that night, uh, she dreamed up the name Snurfer, which is a contraction of the word snow and surf. It was my dad who was out playing with us in the dunes who put the tether on. He'd fall down and the board would go down the hill. And he says, this is stupid. And I said, I agree. So the tether got on. Two purposes. One, you could just hang on to it so you wouldn't lose the board when you fell off. The other thing was you could sort of pull on it and swing it and literally steer. The motion's exactly the same as riding a, uh, the board today. Poppin patented the Snurfer in 1966, and in February 1968, he began holding snow surfing competitions at a Michigan ski resort every winter that attracted enthusiasts from all over the country. A year after Poppin patented the Snurfer in Cedarhurst, New York, the life of 13-year-old Jake Burton Carpenter started to unravel. Jake's older brother George was killed in Vietnam. And a few years later, his mother died as well. Jake even ended up getting expelled from his boarding school. Here's Jake Burton. I mean, I was a wise and when I was young, and to a fault. And when I got kicked out of Brooks was a school, and I went up to see the headmaster who was a headmaster when my father was there and when my brother was there. It was brutal. I mean, my dad made me get in the car, go five hours, see this guy, you know, for a five-minute conversation, and then a long drive home. And that is when I decided to turn my life around and start applying myself to whatever the hell I did. In 1968, the 14-year-old Burton was one of the thousands of kids who purchased a snurfer for 10 bucks and was hooked. It became such an obsession that the 10 years and 100 prototypes later, Jake Burton Carpenter produced the Burton Backhill, 
one of the first snowboards he built with his saber saw out of his apartment on the Upper East Side of New York City. As for the name of his board, Jake figured Burton was a better brand name than Carpenter. Fresh out of college with a degree in economics from NYU, Jake traveled with his snowboard creation to Poppin's National Snurfing Championship in Muskegon, Michigan in 1979. There were protests about Jake entering a non-snurfer board, so a modified open division was created and was won by Jake as the sole entrant. That race was considered the first competition for snowboards and is the start of what we now know as competitive snowboarding. Here's Poppin. When we had our contests, the college kids were, this was sort of like a hula hoop among college kids. They just took it over because it would run on one or two, three inches of snow. And there's a little ski area in Michigan, north of Grand Rapids called Pando. And Pando let, uh, let us have one offbeat chair for five hours when we run our contests and downhill and slalom. And, and uh, that's the way it was. And in 1979, 14 years later, uh, Jake showed up at one of our downhill slalom things. And he had snurfers, but he'd put a little piece of inner tube over to slip your sorrel under. That's how it all got started. Is, is, uh, that was the beginning. And uh, he and on the East Coast and Tom Sims on the West Coast were developing them at the same time. In an interview with Snowboarder Magazine, Burton paid full respects to his West Coast competition, stating, Without Tom Sims to compete with in every sense, and vice versa, snowboarding wouldn't be where it is today. Here's Jake Burton being interviewed in 1980. How'd you get into it? Well, a uh, company called uh, Brunswick Corporation used to make something called a snurfer a long time ago, and I rode those for about the last 10 years, and nobody really improved it. And living back east and just sort of getting flustered with that particular board, just decided to start making something on my own. In 1977, when Burton began making his own boards, he thought he would get rich quickly. He opened Burton Boards in southern Vermont. He had a logo contest and his sister-in-law won five bucks for coming up with the mountain logo that Burton still uses to this very day. Here's what Burton told Inc. Magazine. I don't know if I really understood supply and demand. People were like, a skateboard for the snow? I was a punky kid, and my dad, who was always in my corner, said that I never finished anything. That was it. I wanted to prove him wrong. But in the second year of Burton's snowboarding company, things went from bad to worse. Here's Burton. I mean, I was like Willie Loman, and I was a traveling salesman, and I would load up my car. It was a Volvo wagon at the time, and I remember once going out with... 38 snowboards, and I drove around New York State and visited dealers, and I went out with 38, and I came home with 40. Because one guy had given me two back. Burton decided to stop worrying about immediate profitability and focused instead on cultivating the sport of snowboarding itself. In 1991, he began sponsoring the world's best snowboarders. And like the Steinway Piano Company, who uses the feedback from sponsored pianists to improve their product, 
Burton demanded honest feedback from his sponsored athletes in order to better his design. Burton also began marketing his sport to the ski resorts, who were almost unanimous in blacklisting the snowboard from its slopes. And what an insight by Jake Burton. Create demand for your product by inventing an American sport, which he did. And when we come back, more of the story, this entrepreneurial story, this sports story, Jake Burton's story, here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. Give us your email address, and we'll send you our five best stories each week and it'll be really easy for you to get to the podcast and listen. Again, subscribe to our newsletter. Go to OurAmericanNetwork.org. When we come back, the rest of Jake Burton's story. Our American Stories, and we return to the story of Jake Burton. We ended with Burton deciding to put his snowboard product on pause and instead focus on cultivating the sport itself. Here's Greg Hengler with more of the story. Here's Steve Hayes, Burton team rider from 1984 to 1995, and professional snowboarder Tina Basich. One of the, the key things I think... Um, that um, besides Burton and going from resort to resort and uh, and working with the marketing managers and general managers of the resorts was um, actually Eastern Edge was one of the, the magazines here that had a, a blacklist and they would put every resort that didn't allow snowboarding on the blacklist. But it was, it was different because uh, the group of riders back then were... You know, not necessarily outcasts, but, you know, everybody was had their own, you know, colorful personality. Whether it was long hair and listening to hardcore rock or whatever it was, it was, it was definitely a, a different edge. And uh, you weren't doing it um, because you might get uh, a million-dollar contract with Burton or one of these other sponsors that are out there. Um, there was no um, banner patrol and there wasn't a VIP lounge and a rider's lounge and a, you know, sponsor's area. It was all strictly in one room, and um, it was a, a group of, you know, surfers, skateboarders, and snowboarders getting together and uh, and having this contest. We didn't have edges. We had fins on our boards. Some people weren't riding with high backs. We were inventing our equipment as we went every year. Tricks were being invented. We were crossing stuff over from skateboarding, and it was just an exciting time. And it will never be like that again. Here's editor of Snowboarder Magazine, Pat Bridges. Skiing and snowboarding. In the 80s, it was a scary place. Lawyers ruled the day. And introducing something new to that environment was not welcome. And he took it upon himself as a challenge, and he literally did the legwork, went door to door, and sold our sport. You know, Granted, you could question the motivations, be like, yeah, well, he's motivated by money, he wants to grow a sport, this, that, and the other thing. Well, regardless of his motivations, 20 years later, there's 10 million snowboarders in the United States who rip, reap the benefits of that, you know? The daunting task of selling the sport of snowboarding to the ski resort gatekeepers cannot be exaggerated. Here's a news report from 1985 exemplifying the Herculean task Burton was up against. 
and because they're missiles. They cause, they cause nothing but problems, those things do. This is what all the fuss is about. It's like snow surfing. It's been around for almost a decade in the United States, and now it's becoming the trendy thing to do on our local ski slopes. But the operators of the hills want them off. Uh, the skiers, we try and keep them separated, but the s snowboards come down the slopes, and they'll go right in between the skiers, and we'll kick them off, and they'll just lip us off. And they're dangerous, because if one of these uh, skateboards or ski boards, whatever they're called, hit a person, they'd break their leg because they're just like a missile. And most of them have no brakes on them. So uh, nobody is allowing them on any of the mountains around. But where there's a will, there's always a way. Ski hill operators refuse to let anyone with a snowboard onto the chairlift. So they have to hike to the top of the mountain and then find a secluded ski trail where they won't get caught. The ski patrol says it's got its hands full. Quite a, quite a lot of them are uncooperative, smart alecks. You know, you go up and approach them in a very calm, collect manner, and they, they tend to lip you off. You ask them very nicely to leave, that they're endangering the public and possibly themselves. And they, uh, they swear at you, they tell you to get lost, mind your own business. So it's quite a problem for us, really. Do you see any compromise in the future at all? No. No, skiing is becoming more and more popular, and uh, if these boards become more and more popular, it's going to be more hassles, um, more confrontation. So we just like to say that we don't want them at all. Contrary to what ski patrol officers said, the ski industry was declining. It would be Jake Burton who would open both the chairlifts to the snowboarding community while simultaneously rescuing a flailing ski industry that was dead set on destroying the sport he founded. One by one, the number of ski resorts blacklisting snowboarders got shorter. Here again is Steve Hayes and Jake Burton. Over time, marketing managers said, you know, I believe Killington was one of the last holdouts in Vermont to, to allow snowboarding. And Killington marketing manager saw the name on a blacklist and they're like, geez, we can't have that. And actually, as the sport started to grow, the bottom line was these general managers could not be turning away dollars. There was a little bit of slump in the ski industry, and uh, this was one answer to fill in some of the voids that those guys were looking for extra revenue. So it was very, you know, it took a while before we got under resorts, and that was clearly a huge, you know, move in terms of growing the whole thing and sort of making it bigger. But it took a long time just to get there. As the sport grew, so did Burton's company. Burton has been one of the world's largest snowboard and snowboarding equipment manufacturers since the late 1980s. And Burton remains the pinnacle of sponsorship for snowboarders. Here's professional snowboarder Trevor Andrew. Oh, Jake is the man. Like, he's one of the realest people, you know. The riders to him, it seems like I've always... He's just considered them family, and he, he's just, since day one, you know, he's not the typical, like, owner of a huge company like that that you would expect, you know. He totally is, like, riding with you and just as stoked as everybody else about it. He's not, he's not all business. He's totally, like, loves snowboarding and loves the team, and that's just his thing. He's just, like, is so into it, and... I guess that's what's brought him so much success, you know, is just because he has genuine love for the, for the sport. He's one of the 
pioneers. Here's pro snowboarder Keir Dillon. And you hear it all the time. It's, you know, Burton's corporate, and it's crazy to think that that you're going to call the person that helped pioneer the sport, fought to get it in the mountains, made the R&D, invested so much money to bring it to where it is, you're going to call them corporate. It's like the best case scenario on the planet, you know, like the dude that it pretty much invented the sport, yeah, he's the corporate guy, it means he handled it and, and you have a dude that cares that much about snowboarding dictating where it goes. In 1998, less than a decade after Time Magazine called snowboarding the worst new sport, the International Olympic Committee sought it and the youthful audience it promised. Thanks to Burton, snowboarding is now one of the most watched events at the Winter Olympics. Here's professional snowboarder and Olympic gold and silver medalist, Hannah Teeter. He just wants the best product, and that's what we all want, you know. That's why it's, Burton's like the rider-driven company, is because they're all about input from us. You know, they want it to look good, but they want it to function more so. At first I was like, wow, he's the boss, like... You know, but he's just like a friend. He's just chill and great. He's just a down-to-earth guy. It's nice to have a boss like that. Not many people get nice bosses, but we do. Here's three-time Olympic gold medalist, Sean White. This is, honestly, this is where I like to see Sean backed into a little bit of a corner. Oh my lord! How perfect can you possibly land? I don't know. I've never really felt like he was a boss ever. I don't know. It's been one of those things where he's just like, especially, I don't, I don't know if you've met him or not, but he's just like this really mellow, fun guy. He's like, you know, I think the first thing when we were hanging out, he made some joke about what some woman was wearing, you know what I mean? And I was so blown away by it that I, it caught me so off guard. I'm like, this guy rules. Like, he's all time. <laughs> Much has progressed since Burton initiated improvements to the snurfer. But the raw authenticity that formed the heart of the sport still remains. Here's Burton. Nobody's stopping snowboarders or you know from looking like NASCAR drivers, you know, and putting patches all over them and selling their, you know, themselves to everybody. I mean, that's not what people want to see, and that's kind of good. I mean, there is this sort of sense of couth that's associated with, I think, all board sports that we don't want to lose, and I think that. Um, that might keep things down a little bit, a little bit smaller. Hopefully it'll just sort of keep its scene. During his long tenure as one of snowboarding's true patriarchs, Jake's net worth is upwards of $100 million. Ten years after Jake founded Burton Snowboards, fewer than 7% of ski resorts even allowed snowboarding. But today it's hard to find one that doesn't. Burton's Burlington, Vermont company, which he co-owns with his wife, Donna, remains the industry leader with five international offices and 845 employees. Not even Burton himself could have predicted this much success. I, I had no idea that what would happen with snowboarding. I mean, I saw a sport, but I did not see Sean White on the cover of Rolling Stone twice or snowboarding being in the Olympics or... Um, the stuff that's happened, and it's been the athletes that have made it happen, and we've facilitated it, but it's been uh, exceeded, um, I wouldn't even say dreams, because I never dreamt anything on the level that we're on now. 
I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And what a great story. We're smiling here in the studio. We're beaming because half the people who were quoted here sounded like they were stoners. But they started something new here in this country, a new sport, a new way of life, and they said no to the people in power. They challenged everybody from the owners of these resorts to Time Magazine itself, who said it was the worst new sport. Jake Burton's story here on Our American Stories. And to hear all that we do, go to ouramericannetwork.org, sign up for our newsletter, give us your email address, and we'll send you the five best segments a week. That's ouramericannetwork.org. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. And we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. And now it's time for our American Dreamers series, which is sponsored by the great folks at the Job Creators Network. And Alex Cortez brings us this next edition on someone you likely don't know, but we'll be glad to have met. My grandfather started a store in the northeast part of Philadelphia, and my dad worked with his dad, and they uh, sort of wanted me to work with them, but I had absolutely no interest in, in doing that, having been exposed to, to retail. It, it just didn't appeal to me. You're listening to Steve Schwartzman, who did find other appealing things. His company, Blackstone, manages over $500 billion for investors and is one of the largest owners of real estate in the world. We all started young because that's what people did. I, you know, I went down to the store starting when I was eight on Saturdays, and I'm, I'm sure my dad did something similar. When, when I started going down on a more regular basis, I was in charge of the handkerchief counter. We, we, we had linen handkerchiefs, and women were the only people who, who bought those handkerchiefs. And basically, I was responsible for standing behind the counter and taking out boxes of handkerchiefs that the ladies would point to. They, they would then take those ones they liked out. Maybe they would buy some. Uh, in most cases, they didn't. And then I would put the handkerchiefs back in the box very neatly. You, you can't sell a handkerchief to a lady. They, they like to touch each one, and they make their own decisions, and they actually don't like being interrupted. And that was my job. I, I found that to be somewhat uninspirational. I wanted to learn more, but nobody ever taught me because they must have just felt my capability was suitable for the handkerchief counter. I was paid uh, 10 cents an hour for my work, and I, I remember asking my grandfather for raise to 25 cents. And he said to me, he said, Stephen, 
He said, what makes you think you're worth 10 cents? I said, well, that's what I'm earning. He said, you, you probably aren't worth 10 cents. So that took care of my, my raise. And Steve didn't really have a good response to that. Well, actually, I, I couldn't even wrap packages because I, you know, I, I, I'm not really good with my hands. And so whenever I had to wrap packages, these women would get, at first they were patient, then they became impatient, and, and then they demanded somebody else take over the culmination of the sales process. And, you know, so I was sort of like a loser at this retail game. And so when my grandfather said I... I wasn't worthy of an increase, uh, it was tough for me to disagree with him. I was, I was willing to do almost anything to make money because you know, I was on a very modest allowance and you know, I would deliver phone books, I'd sell chocolate door to door, I'd, I'd, I'd sell light bulbs door to door. And then I came upon a much better idea because we moved to the suburbs that there were all these people who had houses and, and they had lawns. So I went door to door to try and convince people to let me cut their lawn because I was just a kid. So I could do it cheaper than like a big lawn service. And my father had bought a lawnmower so that my brothers and I can cut our lawn. So I had capital equipment for free. And so I managed to convince one person to let us cut their lawn. I think it was for $5, which was a huge amount of money and I recruited my brothers to actually do the work. And we split the profits 50-50, and, and then I got more customers because the first customer was satisfied. And then after about three years, my brothers realized they were doing all the work. I had gotten a few customers, and, and we had our first labor strike, and they uh, protested. They thought their share of the profits was too little, so I think we made one compromise, and then they wanted more. And then I realized this whole thing wasn't going to work for me, and we shut down the service. Three whole years without a labor strike, though. Ain't bad. It was not bad, but they weren't capable of getting the business. In other words, they were really kids, and no, nobody would have given them an order. I was raised as a, a middle-class person in America, and, you know, you, you sort of had to make your way. And, you know, you, you, you did what was available, you know, GDP per capita in the United States is now $63,000. And so, you know, despite the level of anger in society, the median income is quite high compared to when I was uh, young. It was only $14,000 when Steve was born. And, and so I think that's probably discouraged many people. You know, from doing all of these kinds of jobs. I delivered newspapers for a while, too. On balance, I, I think the, the, the kind of, you know, individual effort that many of us made at that time was a good thing. You know, it's, it's training for failure. When, when, you, when you call on somebody's house and they slam a door in your face, this is, this is very impactful. I mean, you go with good intention, and people just don't care. And eventually they care, and you make your way. You make your way. You're listening to Steve Schwartzman, the co-founder of Blackstone, 
the largest alternative asset manager in the world, the author of the book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. And we love bringing you these American Dreamer stories because they happen every day here in this great country. And a lot of it has to do with foundational experiences like a newspaper route and a lawn service and that rejection and how do we handle it. More on the life of Steve Schwartzman, his terrific book, What It Takes, here on Our American Story. with Our American Stories and Blackstone co-founder Steve Schwartzman's story. And we return to Steve having an interesting conversation with his dad at the age of 14. I asked my dad to expand our business because, you know, it had the same kind of planogram, they call it, I guess, in retailing of a Bed Bath & Beyond, but there was no Bed Bath & Beyond. I, I could see that... As a teenager, you know, if, if, if your store is filled a lot and people seem really happy as customers, that, that means you got something and you should expand it. And I, I proposed to him that we uh, expand the store around the whole country, which Bed Bath & Beyond did at some point later. He, he basically said, uh, Steve, I, I, I really don't want to do that. And he didn't give me an answer why. And so I came right back at him and said, well, I figured maybe he didn't like just the ambition of being everywhere. I said, let's expand all over Pennsylvania because I thought that was more containable. And he had the same answer. They didn't want to do it. So then I thought, well, maybe he doesn't like traveling at all. Let's just open, you know, six or seven stores in Philadelphia. And he didn't want to do that. And I said, Dad, why, why don't you want to do that? I said, we'll be really successful. And he said, well, the reason I don't want to expand is I'm very happy. I'm a contented person. I have everything I need in the world. Uh, he said, I have two cars. I have a house. And I've saved enough money to send you and your brothers to college. He said, I, I really don't need more. I, I said, this isn't about needing it. It's just about doing it. He said, well, I work about six and a half days a week now, so I don't know how I can work harder to do these things, and I'm, I'm happy. And um, I wasn't happy. Uh, I wanted to do other things with my life, but the fact that he was, uh, he was a happy, contented, wonderful man and, and I realized that what went with that was, was playing within your own comfort zone. 
and that's what made him comfortable. So I, I accepted that. I didn't understand it because I saw the opportunity and I'm a different kind of person. But I appreciated the fact that he was who he was and I, I love my dad. I realized that people are different and what, what makes them unique is that they all have their own mix of talents and aspiration and all of that has to be respected. When I went to Yale, I, I got a 68 on my first English paper and a 66 on my second one. So without having really refined math skills, I, I did recognize that if I started in 68 and started going downhill, that this was not going to have a good outcome for me, uh, and I might even end up failing out. I had a meeting that was called by my English teacher to discuss my papers, and I said there was no reason to have the meeting, and he said, why is that? I, I said, because in my papers, I had nothing to say, and I said it poorly. And it was stone silence. Uh, and he said, by God, you're not stupid after all. He said, I couldn't have said it any better. And um, he, he said, so you can't write and you can't think. You can't learn two of those things at once. So, so he said, I'll give you the answer to the next essay and I'll teach you how to write. Let's not worry about thinking, let's worry about writing. And he, he did that with a few papers and then afterwards he taught me how to think. And by the end of my first year at um, university, I was on the dean's list, which was the top 10%. And, you know, I, I didn't like joining organizations. You know, I'm always a little intolerant in that sense. So I started some organizations. <laughs> to address particular problems. I became quite well known on campus. One of the things I did was uh, organize a one-person crusade to get rid of what were called parietal hours, which was, I think it was like 238 years or something like that of Yale restricting access to the dorms by women. And there were specified times you could come in the dorms and then you had to leave and I was dating a local girl. I didn't want her to leave. Uh, and I organized a set of surveys and had 11 students at the 11 dormitories where people ate just give out the surveys of any objections that, that anybody could have to women in the dorms. I was in the last all-male class at Yale, and over 99% of the people said they had no objections to just getting rid of the whole restrictions. They weren't worried about loud music, they weren't worried about parties, they were worried about nothing, and then I got a friend of mine who was the number two person at the newspaper on campus to put it on the front page, and four days later, 200 years of restrictions just sort of were canceled. So, so this made me particularly um, popular on campus. You know, I, I'm sure subsequent generations of students wouldn't know who I was, but I was helpful for their college experience. I always found issues where I, I knew there would be a big constituency. I was like a junior, and I realized there wasn't a lot of balance at the university. There was almost no one 
from Philadelphia, the city, not the suburbs, went to Yale. So I was in a psychology class and I managed to convince the professor to let me have some money to go to Philadelphia and go to the major inner city high schools to see why students weren't applying. And I worked with the admissions office to say, maybe there's a way that we could do this. And so I started going around and it was really fascinating. Most of the guidance counselors barely knew that there was an Ivy League. You know, I would ask them, do you, do you have some really like amazing students? And they'd usually say, well, we've got one or we've got two. And I, I, I said, can I meet them? And they, they, they would let me meet them. I was basically a kid myself. So, so if they were really extraordinary, I, I told them that you know, they should think about going to a place like Yelp, and here's why it would be better. And they'd say, well, geez, never heard of that. And I don't have any money, so I couldn't do it. I said, well, there are like things called scholarships that'll pay for you to go. And they, they were sort of incredulous. And, and then I went back to the admissions people and, and I said, you know, it would be great if we had enough money for a bus for all these kids from Philadelphia. And why don't we just, you know, like have them come up and spend, you know, two days and they can see what a place like this would be like. And they said, fine. And, and so like I had buses of these kids come up and you know, take them around the campus, and then we started admitting them. So, you know, I, I sort of believe that everybody who's capable should have a shot at whatever the best thing could be for them. That was an interesting way of my doing something about it. Interesting indeed, and he was doing this completely of his own volition knowing that something was missing at his school, knowing that kids inside those cities weren't being represented at Yale, and doing something about it. And what a unique, sensitive young man it takes to do such a thing. And yet he had this fierce entrepreneurial zeal too, this, this fierce desire to make a, make a difference in the world through business. And that the two are not incompatible, and that so many great business people in this country, so many innovators have big hearts, and make not only a big difference with and through their businesses, but in society at large. And when we come back, we're going to continue with the story of Steve Schwartzman, co-founder of Blackstone, the largest alternative asset manager in the world. He's also the author of the book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. Go to Amazon and get this book, or heck, walk into a local bookstore and buy one. More on Steve Schwartzman's story here on Our American Stories.
And we continue with our American stories and Blackstone co-founder Steve Schwartzman's story. At this point in the story, Steve is graduating college and doesn't have a job. I sort of was a bad interviewer. I, I interviewed with Pan American Airlines, which was at that point the leading U.S. flag carrier. You know, I sat down with that guy and he, he, he said, what, what, why are you interested in Pan Am? And I said, because you don't have a freight line and you have a great name and I think it would be more reliable carrying freight than it would passengers. You know, you could buy surplus aircraft from the Vietnam War, you could be a supplier, and, and that would give you a much more uh, diversified business. So the guy looked at me and he said, we don't carry freight. I, I said, that, that's right, I recognize that. He said, we're, we're Pan Am, we're the number one airline in the world. We, we don't need your advice uh, to get into the freight business. So, so, of course, you know, like 15 years later, they went bankrupt. But, you know, I'm sure he was right. You know, let's just stick to our knitting and go bankrupt. So, so, so what happened is I, I worked at the 15th Yelp reunion. So these were old people. They were 37. And, you know, I was 21. So they were clearly old. And they actually had these marvelous things like children. Uh, hard to imagine. And, you know, there was one family uh, who was having lunch on a, you know, like a, on a blanket in the courtyard where, where, where this reunion was occurring because it was lunchtime. There were other people similarly situated and, and they just looked like the ideal family. I mean, it was two kids and nice husband and attractive wife. And, you know, I sort of looked at that and I, I just decided I'd like to give them a present. And so I went to a bookstore and I bought them a book called Babar the Elephant, which my dad used to read to me before I went to sleep. And I just walked over and I gave this family Babar. Now I was half broke myself. I don't know why I did that other than it was a very idyllic idea of what my life maybe, if it worked out right, would look like. And they, they were just astonished that I, I gave them the book because, you know, I was, I was just a kid who walked over. So, so, so the, the husband asked what I was doing after graduation. I said, I don't have any plan. And uh, he said, well, why don't you come to my office on Monday? And he lived in New Haven. He was worked at the admissions office. And, and so I went to see him and we talked for a little bit and he said, uh, you know, I've got an idea for you to meet somebody who was vice chairman of Bankers Trust. Well, I didn't know what a vice chairman was. I didn't know what a Bankers Trust was. And I barely knew where New York was other than there was a railroad that would get you there so you didn't have to do much thinking. And, and so I went up and went to New York and met with this uh, man whose name was Lewis Lapham. And he was vice chairman of Bankers Trust and we had a nice talk. and. And I'd never been in an office building. And so I was just like, just stunned that you could go up in the air. And, and there was like a whole life up there. They, they had like a policeman who I now realize was a security guard and the wide spaces between desks and offices 
on the side walls. And so after we talked for a while, he said, would you like to have lunch? Well, there's almost no student who wouldn't like to have lunch, uh, particularly if you don't have to pay. So he opened some door and there's a private dining room, which is like, this was like a fantasy. Couldn't have been real, so we had lunch. And he said, well, I'd like to offer you a job at Bankers Trust. And I said, that would be great. He said, but I recommend you not take it. So I said, why, why shouldn't I take it? He said, you shouldn't take it because you'll hate it here. Uh, we'll love having you, but you'll hate it. I said, why will I hate it? He said, because you don't seem that patient and we have a lot of process here. So I said, so what should I do? Uh, he said, well, you should find a very a small group of very smart people doing anything. It doesn't matter what they do. So, so I went back to the person who referred me and he said, how did the meeting go? I said, he offered me a job and told me not to take it. I said, it's sort of a little crazy. Uh, he said, well, I, I know somebody else you should see. So, so he sent me down to Donaldson, Lofkin, Generet, which was a securities firm. He had a classmate of his named Bill Donaldson, who was the managing partner. So I went to see him. And, you know, like all good financial people, they always keep you waiting because they're dealing with a crisis of some type. So he kept me waiting a half an hour. I went to his office and, you know, in, I was in the waiting room and, the, you know, there were all these people walking by, these, you know, guys, you know, sort of running pretty quickly and very attractive girls running back and forth. And so he says, well, why do you want to work at DLJ? I said, frankly, I don't even know what DLJ does. Uh, I, I said, but with all these attractive young people here, whatever they're doing, I just want to do it. He said, that sounds great. So he said, go around and, you know, he set up a time for me to meet his partners. I went back at the end of the day and he said, how did it go? I said, for me or for them? He said, either. I said, it didn't go well for them because I'm completely unqualified and they're wondering why they wasted their time talking to me. So he started laughing. Uh, he thought that was pretty funny. So he said, well, okay. He said, I'll give you a call in a few days. So he calls me a few days later and offered me a job, which I was pretty surprised at considering I had nothing to offer. So he said, the compensation will be $10,000. And I said, that's, that's really terrific, but, but I need 10-5. He said, what do you mean you need 10-5? I, I said, I need 10-5. He said, why? I, I said, because I, I want to be the highest paid graduate from Yale in my year, and somebody else I've heard is getting 10. He said, I couldn't care less. He said, it's 10. So I said, well, I, I won't take the job. He said, you won't take the job over $500? I said, th th that's right. I, I said, it's not about the money per se. It's really, you know, I, I want to be the top graduate. He said, well, I don't know about this. He said, I've got to think about it. So he called me a few days later. He said, okay, 
So I went there, and I had no skills. And that took just a little bit of audacity to do, and it worked. And by the way, it took audacity to go out to a bookstore, get a copy of Babar the Elephant, and give it to a complete stranger. And that stranger, by the way, ended up helping him and then giving him an interview or getting him or landing him an interview with a vice chairman of Bankers Trust who basically hired this young man but told him not to take the job, described the kind of job he should be in. Boy, did he get that one right. In Steve's life, this became really important advice. And then he ends up, well, negotiating his first pay raise before he'd even started and he was utterly unqualified. What a remarkable story thus far. When we come back, we continue with the life of Steve Schwartzman, co-founder of Blackstone, the largest alternative asset manager in the world, and the author of the book, What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. And as always, our American Dreamers stories are brought to us by the great folks at Job Creators Network. And we love telling stories about how people come from the middle class and move up, how they invent, innovate, and create the businesses, products, investments that make this country hum. Our American Dreamers series continues with Steve Schwartzman, his story, here on Our American Story. Turn to Our American Stories in the final portion of Blackstone co-founder Steve Schwartzman's remarkable life story. When we last left off, Steve joined an investment bank, but didn't know anything about investing. I never got trained, and I couldn't wait to leave because I was in the reserves waiting to be trained and called up. So I lasted seven of the most uncomfortable months of my life. Lovely people. But I learned you can never leave a person in a, in a professional environment without having them totally trained because they won't know what to do. You won't get good production from them. They won't have a good experience. And it's all because you don't have training. So one of the things I learned when we started Blackstone is we're going to have really well-trained people because I didn't want anybody in the world being as uncomfortable as I was being in a high-functioning professional setting. I mean, I didn't even know there were stocks. I hadn't heard of them. Uh, and here I am with an office and a secretary and people giving me things to work on. I mean, it was, it was so frightening um, because I was, I was so incapable was one of those things where whenever anybody wanted to give you an assignment, you always looked down or you looked the other way so you wouldn't get picked. And here's the different culture that Steve cultivated at Blackstone. It's not that hard to 
have a, a very positive, unique culture. You, you, you have to, one, know exactly what you want, which we do. You know, we want a meritocracy. We want a place that's not political. We want a place where people get rewarded for what they do. We, we want a place that's highly cooperative and team-oriented. We like a place that expands so, so there's no glass ceiling for anyone. You, you don't need internal politics to kill somebody off if, if you're really just judged on how talented you are because we continually expand. There's always a place for anybody of great talent, people who are nice, who can get along with other people and not have a nasty part where somebody's got to be wary about another person at the firm. Like one junior analyst was when he was skeptical about buying a company called Edgecombe, but a higher-up told him to keep his mouth shut. Well, I'm a specialty in learning from failure, and um, th this one was a terrible one. Uh, it was our third investment, and we had no organized investment committees or processes, and people would just come to my desk, and I would make decisions, and in this case, we had you know, a younger partner who had an idea of buying this steel distribution company as an exclusive. And another partner heard we were looking at this and came in separately and explained that this type of company at this point in the economic cycle was artificially making profits because steel prices were going up and they were booking that increase in price as a profit. But when steel prices plummeted, those profits would all turn into losses and the company would probably go bankrupt and so I had both of them come to my office and sat in front of my desk and I made pretend I was a grown-up uh, King Solomon and I listened to both arguments and I picked the wrong guy who was the first one and uh, within three months the company couldn't pay its principal and interest we had to put more money in it to try and save it we almost lost that money and we sold the company so we didn't hurt our banks who lend to us. We got the, the second amount of money back, but we lost all of our additional money. And this was a terrible outcome. And, you know, one of our investors called me and asked me to come and see them. And we had 32 participants in our first fund, which was the largest first-time fund in the world, actually. $850 million back in 1987. And this guy started screaming at me. I was the, the dumbest guy he'd ever met. You know, he, he said a variety of um, sort of incendiary things about me personally, about our skills, my skills. And um, he raised his voice. He was actually screaming at me. And I had never had anyone scream at me in my family. We never raised our voices, which I only realized when I got to college that that isn't the way everybody is, but that's the way we were. So I hear things in an enhanced way, and when somebody would be screaming, I, I hear it unbelievably loudly. So, you know, I was just sitting there taking this verbal abuse, which was totally justified, and, um, you know, my face started getting red and, you know, I realized I was going to start crying uh, because I was so ashamed of uh, having this person trust me and betraying his uh, 
trust that, you know, I, I just, I just I realized I, I wasn't allowed to cry. And, um, you know, I shook it off and took the rest of my beating and, you know, apologized again and left. And I was in the parking lot uh, in Nyack, New York, by the Hudson. I just looked out at the river and I said, this is never going to happen to me again. I'm never going to be in a position where we've lost people's money. And so we changed the entire process for evaluating investments. Normal things like written presentations, lists of risks, you know, some, some discussion of upside, but principally the downside. We formed an investment committee process where who's ever in the room has to, you know, sort of attack intellectually and cognitively attack the proposal. Is there any way we can lose money? What has to happen before we do? And is that risk worth taking? And, and we still do that. And it's a really tough process, but, but it's not personal. So everybody who comes in knows that's going to happen. So what do they do? They prepare much better than they would because they know they're going to be filleted. Not them. The, the proposal is going to be filleted. And every risk factor is going to be assessed in terms of its range of outcome and its probability of occurring. And we look at whether those risk factors are correlated, because then it's worse than you think. And we've gotten really good at this. So in the last 700 transactions, last 15 years, we've only had one bankruptcy, no liquidations. That's a loss ratio of one-tenth of one percent in highly leveraged transactions. You, you have much bigger loss than that with regular businesses. And, and so we learned, but if we hadn't had uh, Edgecombe and that awful, awful experience, I, I wouldn't have come up with this process, I don't think. This team process also avoids the weird but natural dynamic of a one-person emperor approving not-so-great ideas for social and emotional reasons. If that person turns them down two or three times in a row, the meeting becomes um, just very odd because the person making that final decision realizes that if he says no a fourth time, he's going to start losing the people. The morale of the whole place will change. So, so normally what happens in a regular organization, that person will approve that fourth deal. He won't approve it if he thinks it's going to be a loser, but if it's just so-so, he'll approve it just so the interpersonal chemistry of the group is fine. And those deals almost always are mediocre. And so we don't have the mediocre thing. And we don't have the loss thing because everybody knows what the standard is. So it's turned out to be great and it protects the people who, who bring the deals because they don't get blamed if, if those risk factors occur because we all knew that that was the risk. So you can't blame the people, you know, who were involved with it. You blame yourselves. It's, it's the firm that made the decision. So, so it's very uh, psychologically protective. Uh, for everyone. You think it would be a tough system, but it's, it's not tough. It's fascinating. 
And What Storytelling by Steve Schwartzman. And by the way, that beatdown he took, that well-deserved beatdown, as he put it, because he deserved it. Now, the guy shouldn't have screamed and yelled at him, but, you know, everybody's got their love language, and everybody's got their way of dealing with these things. But Steve took it, and more importantly, he learned from it. And so many of us in life, but particularly in business, how we learn is from failure and from pain. And then not repeating that mistake again, well, that became Steve's life's work. He didn't want to ever feel that way again or take that beat down again. But most importantly, he didn't want to lose people's hard-earned assets and money ever again and develop this remarkable process, this remarkable company that's delivered returns for so many millions of Americans who own parts of this great, great company that Schwartzman built. And as always, our American Dreamers stories are brought to us by the great people at Job Creators Network who care a lot about how small businesses become bigger ones. And we tell these stories because, my goodness, it's the lifeblood of America and the American Dream doing just that. Steve Schwartzman's story, and of course, he's the co-founder of Blackstone. And the book is What It Takes, Lessons in the Pursuit of Excellence. You can get it at Amazon. You can get it at your local bookstore. Steve Schwartzman's story here on Our American Story. I want-